Love Talk Radio. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to ACO Watch, a midweek review. I am your host, Greg Masters, and we are broadcasting today on Wednesday, January the 4th, 2012, from San Diego, California. Happy New Year to all. So I have to tell you, before we get started, uh, my new year uh, kicked off with some mixed blessings, the optimism that many of us are feeling about the future, including yours truly, uh, was substantially dampened yesterday when my son broke his leg while skateboarding and is, as we speak, he's in surgery at San Francisco General Trauma Center. So I pray the eight teams on his case, and uh, we'll find out more about what's going on there shortly. Now, today I'm delighted to have an encore appearance from... Uh, uh, a knowledgeable and uh, prolific uh, consultant, lecturer, author, and now published author, William DeMarco. Bill DeMarco is the president and CEO of DeMarco & Associates, a national independent consulting firm specializing in healthcare delivery system redesign and transformation. Recognized as a leader in research, design, and implementation of community-based health plans, since his Initial involvement in startup health plans in Minnesota back in the 70s. Bill and his team of management consultants, clinical specialists, and reimbursement analysts have assisted employers and physicians in developing better relationships with insurers, up to and including developing local solutions to deliver and finance care. Using health services research from its affiliate Pendulum Healthcare Development Corporation, DeMarco & Associates assists both provider and employer clients in addressing prospective payment approaches in order to build pay-for-performance models to develop direct employer provider contracting entities, benchmarking, and collaboratives. DeMarco has uh, published last month the timely release of Performance-Based Medicine, Creating the High-Performance Network to Optimize Managed Care Relationships. So we'll talk a little later about the book, but up front, we're going to talk a little bit about ACLs, health reform, and the general state of affairs. So, Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it very much, Greg, and I hope that your son uh, comes out of his surgery and does very, very well. It's the parent's worst nightmare, uh, and uh, it's not uh, not very comfortable these days because you never know uh, what kind of delivery system that you're using, but uh, San Francisco certainly has a great reputation. Well, thank you for that, and, and I might just quickly add uh, that the way I found out about this is on Facebook. Uh, he, I, I opened Facebook, and much to my horror, I see this what amounts to a mugshot of uh, of someone who looks just dazed, like he's super drugged in a hospital gown, uh, who knows where. And the statement was "Happy New Year." So you know, my heart starts pounding, and I did some replies immediately. Said, "What's this about? This is no joke. Where are you? I'm concerned. Call your dad." And then several minutes later, I get a little private message from a Facebook friend who I've not met but only have talked to on Twitter and Facebook. And she says, oh, by the way, Greg, 
from one concerned parent to another. If he's at San Francisco General, which you have speculated, here's the phone number. Call them, and they will tell you if he's there. And, you know, I wasn't thinking clearly in that moment. I was sick to my stomach with concern. So I actually called that number. I got through the e- to the ED. They confirmed he was there, and I actually wound up being able to speak with him and find out what the schedule was. So, you know, a shout-out to Zuck. The social media, this is one more example of this virtual community and how it works. So having said that, <laughs> so let's talk, about, um, let's talk about health reform, Bill, and let's talk about ACOs, accountable care, and, and lead into your book. Uh, you know, a lot of fanfare, a lot of uh, stakeholder commentary between the, the provisional release of the rule and then the final rule and then all the subsequent follow-up with the uh, pioneer announcements and so forth. Give us, a, give us your broad brush take and single out anything in particular you want to put some emphasis on. Well, I think what you're explaining uh, with your son is a really good example of perhaps how the social media is going to tie in with uh, where we're going with accountable care. Uh, we didn't have social media in the early 70s when I started in the HMO business, uh, but now we're looking at the uh, potential for population management and identifying specific patients that have specific illness, uh, illnesses uh, and have uh, a reason why they and or their caregivers uh, can get together on social media and talk a little bit about resources and phone numbers and, gee, I had that same problem, let me show you what I did, those kinds of things. That, that's a whole new layer of medicine that we really have had other than across the back fence with the neighbor. We really haven't had access to that. And the more refined that we get in terms of our population-based management of the chronically ill populations uh, as well as the rest of us, uh, we're going to be looking at saying, uh, this is getting more complicated, but I really need someone to explain this to me in English. I need a guide, a coach, uh, what we're calling navigators now, uh, that are reaching outside the hospital, reaching outside the physician group, and saying, uh, we'll, uh, we'll buddy up with uh, the patient as soon as they're discharged and make sure that we're following up to make sure there's no post-surgical infection or Ms. McGillicuddy's taking her pills like she says that she will, but we need to check and make sure that she's actually doing these things. And th- this is, again, a whole different dimension of healthcare that I think up to this point we've been so uh, focused on what happens inside the four walls of the hospital, what happens inside the four walls of the clinic, that really looking at the outside uh, coordination of care is something that uh, that we've missed, and ACOs are, are bringing that really to the forefront, both in terms of identifying specific technologies, specific uh, uh, patient care methods, as well as the actual savings that we can now attach to that, saying it's worth the money to have some of these navigators working for your nurse practitioners or for your hospital discharge department because it actually is going to save you money, uh, time, and also uh, it's going to put you in a very, very strong position to differentiate yourself in the market, which is all part of the competitive value of these ACOs as well. How true. This virtual community and this uh, virtual nervous system that's been constructed in the cloud and otherwise, it really creates a whole different environment that providers who are protected historically by firewalls and hierarchies and God knows what, all of a sudden, you know, it's like people are sort of battering down the fortress. 
Well, that's the idea, is to really open this up so that, again, it can be explained in English to patients that maybe don't really understand what the impacts are. Uh, and also what's happening is that the caregivers, uh, and we're going through that at our place uh, with my mother-in-law, who lived with us for about five, six years here. Uh, she just passed away this past summer. But uh, being able to have uh, the background and the context that I have uh, and also the ability to look at uh, other uh, situations in terms of where resources might be, uh, that's, that's been a very, very helpful because a lot of people have a hard time wading through the Medicare rules of what's covered and what's not, what's custodial, and what's skilled, skilled nursing. And so I get lots of calls uh, from other people who are wading through the same thing. But that's fine because if we can help each other and point each other in direction, it saves a lot of uh, time and frustration. So I do think uh, a lot of good things are coming out of this whole idea of coordinated care uh, at many, many different levels. So I just want to let people who are not familiar with you is that you're a pretty senior, tenured guy. You're a veteran going back to the early emergence of managed care, the HMO Act, tracking it through the development of United Health Group in the early goings. You've seen it all. Health plan, provider-sponsored health plans, granular involvement in medical groups, physician networks, management companies, everything. You know, you're still in the game. You're still in the conversation. Bravo to you. Now, let me ask you this. So with what you're seeing now, I mean, were you surprised? as a starting point by the announcement of who's in the Pioneer program versus who chose to sit on the sidelines? Well, I think there are some uh, of the groups that are on the sidelines, but I think that's the word. They, they are uh, just biding their time maybe a little bit to see what happens with a lot of these other pioneers. And there were some demo projects that uh, we didn't think were going to be part of this pioneer group, but uh, turned out they were going to be. So, uh, And, of course, there's groups like Greater Marshfield, which uh, has incredible uh, uh, leadership in this particular regard because they were in the demo project, did very well in the demo project, and now have decided to go uh, the next step as well. Well, so I think you're going to see uh, the pioneers uh, be very, very uh, strong this year, and I think by next year you'll see a few more pioneers added. So uh, I think that's where the government's trying to get us to have some models out there to say it really, really works. Uh, it's not a unicorn. Uh, it's not a camel. Uh, it really does work, uh, but you have to really think about what you're doing and recognize that most of these pioneers, they were pioneers. They were there 10, 20, 30 years ago and it's taken that long for them to evolve both in terms of their uh, clinical precision as well as their cultural uh, integration to really make sure that this becomes their focus is to deliver that superior level of care that's measurable uh, and, and can, be, uh, can be promoted as such. So what I'm, yeah, most of the participants are coming out of the group practice culture slash integrated delivery system environment for the most part, but there might be a couple of surprises here or there in the form of, of maybe institutionally-led uh, entities versus granular group practice, typical group practice. Th th that was my note, but uh, um, the, uh, uh, you know, I have, I have a senior moment on, on the pioneers, but what I, what I wanted to ask you is did, did you uh, notice any contrast of, like, well, this is a surprising participant versus you would not expect uh, oh where where I was going was when AMGA came out fairly strongly against the notice of proposed rule I, I was a bit surprised by that because I thought here is the most forward thinking um, uh, 
an experienced group of people in managed health care, uh, it surprised me that they were that they were so vocal in some of their opposition and that some continue to remain and are not in the pioneer. Does that any of that strike a chord with you? Well, it does. I actually have their uh, critique here on my desk. Uh, I think they did a very thorough job of suggesting areas that I think were reasonable for the government to consider, and many of the changes that uh, that you see in the final law, I think, was uh, part of their uh, their support as well as support from EHA and some of the other groups that uh, that were out there. So I think it was positive overall when they and, uh, and all of us saw there were some very, very big uh, changes that made things a little bit less murky uh, and also made things a little bit less risky in some areas. Uh, at the same time, uh, there were some of the old standard rules that were in there that some people still complain about, but I think that if you're going to have a structure like this and you're going to handle a fragile population like the Medicare uh, population, uh, you need to have some specific rules uh, and what our experience has been in building uh, several of these ACOs so far and in the process of more uh, as we go into the new year here uh, has been that the CMS folks are very um, intrigued by this entire process. That is to say, when we sit down and talk with them about what we're trying to do with what group and what they have and what their gaps might be and what we're going to do to change those gaps, they're absolutely astonished that, oh, gee, I never thought about changing that gap or bringing this together in this way. And so they become very, very interested in seeing this organization's support because what they see is a lot of these little models, be they pioneer or be they traditional or some of the advanced payment models that are now uh, starting up, uh, they see all of them as laboratories uh, for the government and all of us to learn from. So um, from your perspective, uh, outside of perhaps the pioneer group, maybe the second tier of players, what, where would you sort of direct them in terms of what they ought to be thinking about, some, some possible context to maybe build out their thinking for strategy purposes? Do you have any thoughts there? Medical management. In two words, uh, this is where I think a lot of the health plans early on in the 70s got off track. A lot of the insurance companies uh, paid a lot of lip service to medical management by putting in uh, limits on uh, on payment or restrictions or improving denials. Uh, they, they did all of these things thinking that's medical management, and that was not at all what a lot of the pioneer plans as well as many of the provider-sponsored plans developed uh, in the early 70s and into the 80s where their costs actually went down uh, overall and their premiums stayed pretty level to the point where they did have an effective way to compete with the insurance markets as well as even some of the PPOs that didn't have that medical management component. Uh, and if the truth be told, that's really uh, the guts of why uh, this book came out of me. It was one of these things that built up inside me, and I made the mistake of giving a presentation on this topic, and one of the publishers was in the room, and one thing led to the next to say, uh, where are we going? Well, where we're going is much more into performance-based medicine and away from this volume and you know, the more that you build, the more that you make, and all of these other things that have created an inflationary aspect to healthcare that uh, to date uh, – no one seems to really be able to get their arms around. So it isn't going to be something that can be mandated from on high or even at the federal or state level. It really is something that's going to have to be built in from the local area, and these pioneer plans are good examples of these from the Geisingers, the Marshfields, these other groups. They built in at the community level and integrated themselves with the community by building basically a high-performance network. So when we first started working on these types of projects, uh, we asked questions about their case management and what 
what they were doing outside the hospital, outside the physician group to really guide these patients and navigate them through these series of things they need to know about. And what happened uh, was that a lot of these groups hadn't really thought about that. And I'm looking at it even three, four years ago saying, well, you know, the government with their, with their value-based purchasing is going to start requiring that you uh, admit people for what they need to be admitted for, but that you don't readmit them for that same or similar uh, diagnosis within a specific period of time, or you could have the entire payment uh, removed or worse yet you could be fined for this it could trigger a rack audit or something in that order and then people look at me saying really is the government going to do that well as we know uh, january 1st the government is doing that uh the private payers to a great extent are following that same uh, uh series of tying in this these clinical performance components to the actual payment for services and what we're seeing in the ACO marketplace is that a lot of the accountable care organizations are now going back to the 70s and saying, what worked for reducing readmissions? What worked for better coordination of primary and specialty care referral? What worked in terms of primary care uh, team leadership to really allow primary care physicians to be as productive as they can be and still practice at the top of their license? All of those things that we experimented with in the 70s are now coming out uh, in uh, a lot of the legislation uh, in NCQA, a lot of the uh, National uh, Committee for Quality Assurance uh, guidelines that they're using uh, for ACOs, uh, a lot of that are, are things that we did just by accident back in the 70s. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I like to point out is we had a group of uh, physicians. We had five physicians. Each physician had two nurse practitioners, and each of them had two nurses, and that was our little practice that we enrolled 75,000 people in. People said, wow, how could you do that? Well, we did that by making the primary care physicians extremely effective. One of the things we did at the practice level was there was an informal meeting in the morning where we'd look over Mrs. McGillicuddy and who are the charts for that day? and does Mr. McGillicuddy's chart have the x-ray or the lab test or whatever it is that the doctor is going to review with her? Oh, they don't? Well, then we're going to call the lab and say, where the heck is that test? Oh, we can't get it till tomorrow. Well, call Mrs. McGillicuddy and reschedule her because there's no sense in having the doc sit there and just talk about, uh, you know, what's uh, the, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So by doing that informally, we made physicians very productive. They felt good about what they were doing. And at the same time, it really put uh, on... Uh, notice a lot of the laboratory x-ray and ancillaries that we needed to have a specific time an accountability of a specific time that they would be able to deliver these tests uh, so that there was a good follow-up and that there was uh, coordination so waiting for six seven months for a test was not acceptable I had a wonderful medical director chair uh, dr. Uh, Richard Weber and uh, he would take no prisoners I mean he would make sure that people were actually following through and being accountable for the care that they were delivering and I think that's really the key in terms of medical management is having that kind of leadership and that kind of culture that says we can, we're going to do what we think would be good for our patients, for our family members. If our son got hurt in an accident and was in surgery, what would we want the physicians to do for them? Excellent. Pretty nuts and bolts, common sense kinds of kind of stuff. And I, and I assume you're bringing a lot of that uh, sort of wisdom forward in, in your book. But l let me ask you this, for those who don't understand value-based purchasing versus bundled payment, uh, talk a little bit about, about both because it's one thing to look at a bundling process on a pro forma, and it's another thing to negotiate that with the series of physicians who are involved in a particular episode of care. Give us some context there. 
they, they really are, and again, we, we cover this in the book in various ways, but the idea that value-based purchasing uh, was something that came out of Levitt uh, in the Bush administration as an executive order in August uh, five, six, seven years ago, uh, basically we built four pillars, uh, and these pillars were uh, very broadly based, but it, it really revolved around accountability, really revolved around data sharing, really revolved around pricing that was reasonable, really rowing about affordability, and then talking about actually uh, service and uh, improving the service level. So what's happened in the uh, ensuing years is people have gotten focused on this value-based purchasing as something that was distant and it's not happening, but it's actually that a whole umbrella that is over the top of the value-based purchasing for hospitals that took effect Gen 1, the value-based purchasing for employers that has been an ongoing thing of what employers are now demanding in many of their contracts. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to have to go see a doctor here myself. And then um, looking at the value-based purchasing on a long-term basis in terms of this uh, ongoing feedback loop to see if we really are improving care by using more and more evidence-based medicine for both buyers uh, and providers to see if, in effect, uh, working together is going to be more more fruitful than, than not. Uh, this is uh, all part of the, again, uh, umbrella that, that we put uh, ACOs, we put a lot of these other types of relationships, including now the bundle payment relationship between uh, payers uh, and providers to say to each of them, uh, we have uh, a need to have some accountability in terms of knowing what the cost is somewhat in advance. So prospective payment is still well and alive when we talk about bundle payment. Uh, bundle payment can be episodic. Uh, bundle payment can be a series of other types of services that are tied to a diagnosis, or it can be a bundle payment that's tied together to a broad number of inpatient, outpatient, all these other types of services for a specific population. So depending upon where you want to use that definition, uh, the, uh, the bundle payment is nothing really new to medicine. Global uh, payments have been issued uh, for years and years, and uh, even percentage of premium. We've used that in Florida, these other locations where people are sophisticated. The problem, and it's continuing to be a problem, and the insurance companies uh, will tell you about it, and that is it's not the bundling, it's the unbundling. So, yeah, they, they yeah. go to the bundling and say, here's $8,000 for right. uh, a chronic care case, and now you, Mr. Hospital, you have to apportion this out to the physical therapist, to the uh, to the uh, pharmacist, to the primary care physician, to the specialist, the surgeons, all these people. And the hospital said, I have to do what? Yeah, well, right. that's the responsibility. But we don't have a main method to do this. In fact, most insurance companies don't, and most third-party administrators don't either. So this is like a whole new set of technology that, again, everybody has to get kind of used to. Uh, but it is something that is underneath that whole umbrella that we were talking about earlier. Right, and if, if hospital administrators thought their job was difficult, you know, to this point in time, just wait until they get into the fair medicine conversation about allocation of a prepayment. Allocation of a prepayment and then add ICD-10 into that. Wow. It's the biggest homework assignment to have for a long, long time. So, but a lot of this got pushed backwards, and you know, the can got kicked down the road, and now all the cans are stacked at the end of the road. And now we have to go and kind of tear through them piece by piece. So the transition here uh, is complicated because it covers everything, and at the same time, you can't eat the whole elephant. You have to do it piece by piece. 
So the question becomes, what are you willing as a hospital or a physician group to do first to eventually emerge as this differentiated high-performance medical group? And if you look at that as the goal, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but if you look at that as the goal, uh, there's a lot of opportunity on the other side of that, and I think that's maybe if there's something else that's missing in the accountable care is really formulating on what is the opportunity with being an ACO, uh, and certainly if you are superior at medical management, your medical management is going to eventually uh, get to the point where at, even as you add sicker and sicker populations, you're going to be able to do more and more work for them at a prospectively determined reasonable amount. And that's exactly what all of us uh, coming up on 65 and those of us that uh, are already over that 65, that's what everybody wants. And, and, you know, and considering the demographic shift here, I being also of the baby boom generation like you, is uh, where I've witnessed medical management and pretty much best-in-class medical management fail is in the subacute area. Yes. And, and now when you're talking about the concern around readmissions and penalties for readmissions and the whole downstream, I see, an, I see something here where the tail is going to wag the dog. Subacute is going to start sort of directing back to the institutional acute care providers, hey, guys, this is what we're seeing. This is what you've got to fix. Right. Or, and, and you're going to have a choice of place to fix it. Do you have to fix it inpatient? Do you have to fix it outpatient? Do you have to fix it at home? And there's so much more uh, at-home care. I talked to a physician yesterday who's uh, semi-retired, but that's his vision, is he wants to spend all of his time on looking at at-home telemetry, at-home services, things that patients can take responsibility for and do more for themselves at home. Uh, and I think that the, the prescription for change and a lot of these other innovator prescription, they were all part of that same idea, is to say if we can really make this whole delivery system a little bit more transparent, more people are going to say, nah, I don't need to go to the emergency room for that. I don't need to go to the doctor for that. I can take care of myself. I'll take my own temperature. I'll check out what I'm doing. I'll look at the symptoms. And then if I, if I really, really don't know what I'm doing, I can always do a follow-up. Uh, and that's where a, a lot of the healthcare system now is kind of stuck because we're saying, well, do we need more primary care? Do we need more specialty care? Well, we do need more primary care, but more and more of the elderly people are going to see a cardiologist for primary care. So we're making it complicated, but it can be managed. Uh, but we have to have in place some, uh, some efficiency and some effectiveness. And if there's anything I know from walking these hospitals and the doctor's offices, they're, they're talking about efficiency and effectiveness, but every single department is measuring it differently. And it is almost impossible to then look at this dashboard that everybody envisions in their head saying, well, this is what the four stars and five stars are going to relate to. Uh, you can't because everybody's saying, well, you know, my budget is $5 million. Well, how many visits can I get for that versus, well, my goal is to have 25 million visits and I don't care what the money is. So all of a sudden you're looking at capacity issues and you're looking at uh, you know, financial issues are coming together. I embedded a new word that I put in the book called recapacitation. And that's the thought process by which your physician group or your hospital starts to rethink 
what are the services you're really good at and what are the services that maybe you're not so good at that you might want to farm out or uh, contract out or even bring somebody in-house that's better at it than what you are. And this is where I'm starting to see more system uh, approach using that kind of thought process versus the typical let's continue to build and build and build because volume will pay for it, volume will pay for it. Uh, we're getting into that huge, huge uh, vortex where uh, we're going to have hospitals out there that are going to be overbuilt that people can't afford. Uh, and you're going to have hospitals, as we do right now, who are starting to rapidly consolidate by virtue of the fact they realize their capacity is such that it doesn't meet what today's or even the future of medicine's needs are. Uh, I love love what you just said. I'm hearing echoes of Clayton Christensen and the the Innovator's Prescription. Uh, it, it, competition is good, but it better be the right business model. And the sort of yeah, the, the gravy the gravy train days are over. Just adding capacity and winding and dining docks to redirect admissions. You know, it's a much more complex proposition at the institutional level. So we're running up against our sort of wind down on the line live portion of the segment. The way it works, Bill is. We can actually we have a hard stop for the live portion of the show, but if you uh, want to, we can chit chat in sort of a, an overtime segment up to 15 minutes past the hard stop at half past the hour. But um, any closing thoughts you want to offer about uh, performance-based medicine? You know what what is performance-based medicine, and in few words, how do you optimize it in managed care relationships? Well, you optimize it by building a very strong network, a uh, delivery network. Uh, you build a uh, points, uh, checks and balances within that network, and you build your entire operation around a goal or a vision of really improving uh, quality based on evidence-based principles. And if you can do that, and you can do that consistently over a period of years and years and years, you'll eventually become the new pioneer uh, organizations in the next 10, 20 years, which we're really going to need uh, as examples to others to say, yes, it can be done. Uh, but that is a whole change in the business model. You're exactly right. You want to pick the right business model for your market. Okay, and well, thank you for that, Bill. And so, who who should uh, uh, who should they be watching? You know, I mean, who who's sort of best in class here for indicia of what they ought to be doing that they might not be doing presently? Who would you suggest? Well, I think it depends on where what kind of market you're in, if you're in a rural market or if you're in a metro market. But I, I still hold Marshfield out as a wonderful example. Dean Care, wonderful example in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, we've done uh, some work with Carl Care uh, down in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, they're doing the most impossible things of merging a hospital and clinic together, and they did it in 60 days, Greg. So, I mean, there are things happening out here that we didn't see before. Uh, Fairview Hospital in uh, Minneapolis, uh, I'll mention a hospital here, too. Uh, they did a turnaround of that enterprise. I'm impressed. Okay, Bill, thanks again for your time today. We do this weekly, ACO Watch, a midweek review, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Join us next week for another episode of this week of ACO Watch, a midweek review. Thanks, all.
Okay, and I'm still chatting with William DeMarco in the overtime portion of ACO Watch Midweek Review. And, Bill, we can do this for as long as uh, you want. Uh, you are available or we have anything to talk about. So, uh, sorry, I always uh, have a little tr- uh, tr- challenge managing that wind-down. But, um, uh, yeah, I didn't mean to necessarily um, put you on the spot there in terms of names and such. But, uh, um, you know, I had uh, Vince um, Caritas on the sh- on the show a while back and and uh, he did a post about um um an ac you know a um a piece p e a c a payer enabled accountable care versus you know accountable care organization and he started talking about the payer role and and i know you're you're one of the guys who has has some pretty practical um uh well forged insights about the provider payer interface do you want to spend a moment or two talking about Maybe some of the considerations in terms of the pair's role in this in, in this tapestry that needs to get weaved. Yeah, I, I think that's worthwhile because I think the word ACO has not been uh, trademarked yet. Uh, so everybody's running around saying, "I'm an ACO, I'm an ACO," uh, uh, and that's where a lot of the organizations I think get confused. Uh, there's payer uh, negotiated. Uh, I think the uh, I did talk about San Francisco there. Uh, the city and county uh, employees, firemen, policemen, all of that. They negotiated a very nice deal with uh, Brown Tolan and with a couple of the other position groups, and they formed a bundle payment relationship uh, through Blue Cross Blue Shield. So Blue Cross still is the intermediary. Uh, they're bundling the payment. They're keeping track of the docs and they're keeping track of the hospital and they're still doing something for their employer. And one of the things that I saw in their discussions was that the Blue Cross organization said they would guarantee that they would not uh, increase their rates more than 2%. In other words, any savings that came out of this relationship would be pushed back to the city and the county and uh, also shared with the provider. So I see that as a model maybe of not an ACO per se, but maybe a model of a new payment relationship uh, that's spawned by, uh, by payers. Uh, on the other side, uh, we're seeing some new things with Medicaid in the state of Colorado. Uh, a lot of different regions have established there and they're trying to do different things with data now analysis to really say if you hit these performance points, there's some additional dollars that would be put in by the state. Uh, that's a different way uh, to look at it, but it's very, very progressive and, and nonetheless. Uh, and we're certainly here in Chicago. We've got Advocate, uh, which is one of the largest uh, hospital systems in, well, it is the largest hospital system in Chicago, has an exclusive with Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, of Illinois, which was one of their biggest payers to do bundle payment. And what's happened is it's forced that bundle payment, that not to exceed amount, if you will, that's tied to uh, the severity of the patient, et cetera, uh, that's forced the physicians and hospitals to be much more economical and much more efficient in what they're delivering. So these are not ACOs. They're bundle payment relationships. But nonetheless, eventually what will happen out of that is some sort of a uh, ACO structure where the physicians and hospitals are uh, continually coordinating care and continually uh, negotiating contracts with various third parties and organizations so that they really are integrated with the community as a high-performance panel. Yeah, the, from where I sit, uh, advocate, and I've, I've heard Sachs talk at a few conferences, I mean, they really seem to have, they seem to, they have sustained their interest in managed care. And rather than deconstructing their PHO and their network relationships with their affiliates, they hung in there. And they found a way not just to stay alive, but actually to thrive under the under the I would call a managed care 2.0 type of environment, which really is what we're talking about in terms of accountable care. What do you think? 
Well, I think that you're right. I think I've spent a lot of time with advocates saying, why don't you start your own insurance plan? Why are you kowtowing down to the to the Blues and the Uniteds and all of these? And they said, we don't want to do that because being uh, free of owning our own health plan makes us more flexible in our negotiations with these various payers. Well, that was really good uh, counsel 10 years ago. Now we're starting to see, and, and one of the triggers that brought this about for Advocate was the fact that uh, United and a couple of the other groups said, you are not integrated as a collective, so therefore you can't negotiate that and call the Justice Department. They came in and did an investigation, and boom, there it was. So the burning platform, for advocate was that particular event where they were managing uh, what they thought uh, was an integrated panel, but in fact had many holes, many gaps into it, and had to fix all those holes and gaps in a very short period of time and go back to justice and say, here's our corrective action plan. And justice departments, you know, they saw the advantage of that, saying, okay, here's a, here's a provider. We slapped their hand and we, uh, we told them that they were going to be fined, but now they're saying we want to fix this and they're willing to put this kind of money into it. Wow. Wow. Well, now we have a whole different discovery that's going on. So I, I think that's where uh, advocate and groups like that uh, really need to be aware of the fact that as either they have to be either clinically integrated or they have to be financially integrated. And what the accountable care organization structure offers is a combination or a balance of both. But they need to get a starting point by really developing that clinical integrated infrastructure to connect with one another, to share some of the payments, and to really uh, make sure that they're monitoring that evidence-based care improvement process over a period of time. Because then they generate a community benefit. If you can prove a community benefit, it, you, the Justice Department will listen to that usually and say, right. all right, prove it. And if you can prove it, now you've got something. You've got a, a really in interesting uh, proposal for them. And, of course, today we have the new and improved EHRs. We have the stipulation for meaningful use and so forth. So it, it energizes the clinical side if they're not willing to go on the financial side. But, but to me, they seem to have affected a balance between institutional and professional in a way that most, most entities or enterprises or joint ventures, quasi or otherwise, uh, haven't quite figured out yet. It was very complicated. Uh, we know some of the attorneys that did a masterful job of thinking of something out of the box, building up a lot of LLCs by specialty departments so that they were enterprises onto themselves and that enterprise would be rewarded. And my original background in behavioral science will tell you that if you reward the group, the group is going to actually take some stand to protect that money coming in or protect that particular group's vision of what they deserve. And that's a lot better than having the hospital come to the physician say, you got to do this. That's really uh, you know, a career-limiting <laughs> statement by a hospital. I, I, I say that's the kiss of death of their strategy if it's top-down <laughs> like that. <laughs> so on, so on, the, on the West Coast, of course, we have our own, and I think Monarch, uh, Monarch Healthcare kind of comes close to the advocate mom. Not exactly, but uh, it's interesting that uh, United has, in essence, bought their management company, United Health Group. We're seeing that happen everywhere. Uh, it is absolutely a whole new dimension. And when I was out in New York and talking to some of the people in Wall Street, we were talking about what are these insurance companies going to do with the uh, with the uh, MLR and all of the, the mass loss ratios and all of this. What are they going to do? They're in a business where they can't really raise their rates or the insurance commissioner is going to slap them down. And they're in a spot where they're going to have to cover more benefits with no pre-existing conditions, et cetera, et cetera, so take on more risk. How are they going to survive with this? And so where everybody went was – 
you've got two risks in managing a health plan. One is the administrative risk. So what we need to do is what you were saying. We need to get involved with EHRs, get involved with digital uh, transfer of funds, digital transfer of clinical information, digital transfer of all of this, and that's why you see the big insurance companies buying the HIEs, the health and health exchange uh, uh information exchanges, uh, they're doing all of those things because it's going to bring physicians closer to those insurers so they have that kind of data. On the other side of the ledger, they're going to have to say, well, what if I can't get physicians to tie in with this, which it continues to be a problem. This is a problem for uh, uh, Stewart out in uh, Boston where they're having a hard time aligning the physicians with those hospitals, so now it's questionable whether they're going to follow through with their ACO. That's a huge, that, that is the component to a successful ACO, is that physician leadership. Well, what the uh, insurers are now doing is saying, I, I could buy uh, primary care physicians, even specialty care physicians, and do it, not so much in terms of buying the practice itself, because that's going to violate the corporate practice of medicine in most states, but I can buy the MSO or the IPA entity, as Monarch is, and buy that enterprise, because that's where all the money comes in, and that's where all the money comes out, and if I buy that, I de facto have some influence over all of the decisions within the physician practices that have to do with quality and revenue. So this yeah. is where we're seeing more United uh, is, is out there in Texas. They're in California. Yeah. Uh, I have them here in Wisconsin. I have them a couple other places on my uh, ledger here where they actually want to buy uh, these uh, IPA entities. Some of the IPAs, frankly, aren't didn't do too well. Once they got out of capitation, they realized, wow, there isn't a whole lot for us to do. And uh, instead of forming an MSO or doing something else, they just kind of sat there. And now here comes a third party that says, I'll come in and buy this at a premium cost, I might add. Uh, one of the things that people say was, well, isn't this uh, the same valuation uh, that it would be with uh, buying practices as a hospital? And the answer was absolutely not. Mm -hmm. To an insurance company, they're hearing 750 dollars per member per month coming in to them for Medicare Advantage. Oh, my God. So I go to a physician group, and I say to them, I'd like to buy your group or the entity that holds your group together, and you each have five, 6,000 Medicare uh, patients. Well, I could offer you in the millions and still have money left over for arbitrage, and the physicians would go, wow, I'm, I'm a primary care practice. You mean my practice is worth that amount? And, and, I, and I've been offered this, uh, you know, 250000 from the hospital across the street, plus all the star groups I have to jump through and they have to jump through and all the goodwill that we can't do. And now they're coming to me and saying, I don't have to worry about any of that. I'll give you cash. Uh, and in one case, we had an insurer that offered them equity stock in the insurance company. So, wow, the providers are in a position where, as a collective now, once again, as a collective, they can uh, march out or march in, and it gives them a little bit more control over their future enterprise than they would even uh, as, as an independent or even as an MSO. So I've seen these onesies and twosies that have been out there for years, and they're, you know, they're, they're starting to see a little bit of gray hair in the mirror in the morning and saying, you know, where am I going to go? I'm on a treadmill. You know, I can see a, a new patient every 12 minutes, a new patient every 11 minutes. Eventually, something's going to give, and so now we're saying to them, well, there is an opportunity, but don't go in by yourself. Go in with a group, a collective, and organize yourself so that you're doing a joint venture with these insurance companies because they will offer you more than the traditional hospital might. And for hospitals, they are starting to see that, saying, boy, I never thought that the 
the buyer of uh, physician offices were going to be uh, insurance companies. I thought it would be FICOR or one of these other groups. But wow, this is really powerful because now I've got not only the physicians that I'm depending upon for referrals and admissions, I also have the patients right tied to that insurer. So, so physician, know thy worth. <laughs> That's it. Know your value. Know yeah. your value out there. And, you know, don't right. uh, you know, don't uh, right. don't, don't don't be uh, too afraid of it because it, it can be a good thing. But also, don't let them own your soul. So this right. is where the other foot can drop, yeah. where all of a sudden they load you up and you become exclusive to them for all of their products, and suddenly the fact that you work for them. Well, I, I, I think important. we I think we have a graduate course here, really. Esther, we wouldn't run out of topics, but let, let me ask you, this would be my concluding question. Gauge for me or, or, or rate for me or handicap uh, the risk here that this is all going to collapse because primary care physicians are just going to exit into concierge, retainer, or membership-based practices and, sent, and, sent, and simply flip the bird to health plans and hospitals. So, you know, enough. I'm just going direct practice. Screw you. What, what, what's the risk there? Some of that's happening. I, I, I'm working with one right now in another state where they uh, uh, they are not Medicare um, assignment. They don't accept Medicare assignment. What they do is they bring the patient in. The patient writes the physician a check. The physician turns around, bills Medicare, and then Medicare refunds the check to the patient. So in effect, they get 7.5% uh, on their uh, uh, higher than they would have gotten under RBRBS, and they don't have to jump through all the Medicare rules. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because they make more money and they don't have to jump through the rules. It's a bad thing because at some point, somebody across the street is going to be a participating physician, offer the same services at less than 7.5%, and the patient doesn't have to fill out any of their paperwork or pay money up front and tie up their cash flow, and all of a sudden that patient is going to walk out the door if they're not careful. So I'm seeing that that sounds like a really great idea, but the insurance companies or third parties do offer some convenience uh, as long as they do pay the bills uh, and don't put the, put the position against the patient. Uh, for those insurers that still think they can do that, their their days are pretty much numbered. But I am seeing some very, how would you say, consumer-focused uh, billing, consumer-focused uh, uh, types of paperwork that's being offered out there uh, by some of the big insurers as well as some of the small insurers. So, uh, But I think at some point the physicians are going to say, you know, I really, I, I, I'm really going to have to see all these Medicare people, so I'm going to have to go through all this paperwork. Uh, I really